Hey, what's going on, everybody? What's going on? I hope you guys are having a wonderful day. Welcome, welcome, welcome to drboystv.com, the home for intelligent black people. My name is Dr. Boyce Watkins. And uh, today I have to, um, uh, I had to cancel our book club tonight because I am in Iceland, believe it or not. And uh, we're going to be flying tomorrow. And um, literally the time that I was going to do the book club is like literally like one one thirty in the morning or two two a.m. in Iceland, and I had a, I have a six thirty. I have to get up out of here at six thirty for a flight, so I canceled the book club. But I decided why not go onto the YouTube channel and um, and just uh, share some of what I was going to share tonight in the book club. This is uh, from the Black Business School. It's free to the community. We do Powernomics training every Wednesday night at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. If you go to boycewatkins.com, you can find a way to sign up for that. Uh, anyway, hit the thumbs up button, thumbs up, share, subscribe. Let me know what city you're from, and we're going to get started. Tonight, we're going to read from Dr. Claude Anderson's book, uh, The Black History Reader. And I'm going to read a section of this book that's going to absolutely blow your mind. And it's all about the hidden manipulation uh, that politicians have done uh, to the black community. So, uh, so uh, get comfortable and let me let me know if you can hear me. Give me a yes if you can hear me. Okay, and uh, we're gonna get started on drboystv.com in three, two, one, and go. Here we are, clan, the isms, cataclysm, great. Our people out here struggling, trying to make it in this state. Everybody out here doing it, but we the ones who late. Now, family, we the ones who got to delegate. Get that money in the power, never be fake. Stick to co-sign for three. What did he say? Uh, create jobs, support our own. Educate the same and buy back your home. Got three degrees, triple ten. Three PhDs, now we on the CNN. DBTV, let's talk about negligence. Ignorance is bliss, but we can turn into intelligence. Believe none of what you hear, half of what you see. Let's break it down here on Dr. Voice TV. Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome to drboystv.com, the home for intelligent black people. My name is Dr. Boyce Watkins, and uh, I want to greet everybody in here. I uh, Shout out the city you're from. Let me know what city you're from. Fannie Wilson is out of Columbia, South Carolina. Silver uh, Solamo, I see you. I'm doing very well. Thank you. Uh, what are my thoughts on the Africa-Russia summit? Oh, well, that's that's not the conversation for today, but it was interesting. Uh, you saw a lot of African countries aligning with Russia, which I thought was very interesting, because remember, you have the whole BRICS alliance, um, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, uh, where they're looking to get away from the dependence on the U.S. dollar. Uh, right now, honestly, that's not a threat to uh, the sovereignty of the dollar. It's just not, but it could be. Anything can change, you know. And um, in fact, you saw the United States uh, government's long-term debt uh, credit rating drop today from triple A to double A plus. And a lot of people uh, were concerned about that. But honestly, right now, at this point, based on what we know, it's it's much ado about nothing. So anyway, um, uh, let me see what city from Charles is from Brooklyn. I see Emotep from the Bronx. Uh, DDS, it says, get your tickets to the All Black National. Yes, the All Black National Convention is going to happen October 20th uh, in uh, Atlanta. And so I hope you'll join us. It's, it's the greatest gathering on the planet of B1 people and intelligent black people throughout the world. And we don't just solve problems. We also have a really good time. So you're going to have a ton of fun. You're going to learn a lot. 
and you're going to connect with a lot of like-minded people. And so if you are, if you're sick of the ignorance, <laughs> this is the place for you. If you want our people to rise up, this is the place for you. If you believe in black love, this is the place for you. Uh, if you believe in a strong black community, this is the place for you. And so uh, join us at the All Black National Convention. And uh, in, if you have a business and you want to sponsor, our sponsorship packages are very reasonable. Uh, you have to, you know, we have to, we can only take uh, sponsorship from certain types of companies. Uh, we can't let that impede on uh, the freedom of the event. But if you're interested, just go to allblacknationalconvention.com. All that information is there. And uh, all of our lead sponsors, I'll, I'll meet with you personally and talk to you about your business and figure out a way that I can help you succeed. All right. So let's get started. Um, so, so how many of you have heard about Dr. Claude Anderson's book, The Black History Reader? Um, the Black History Reader is one of his books. Uh, his website is powernomics.com. If you haven't been to Dr. Anderson's website to take a look at his books, uh, I think every black child should be reading those books. I know there's a whole conversation about, you know, uh, uh, critical race theory and whether or not white people are going to be teaching your kids at school, you know, whether they're going to teach you black history or not. I don't know about y'all. Give me a yes or no. Give me a yes or no if you agree with me that I don't think we need anybody to teach us our history. Uh, give me a yes if you agree that we teach our history to our children better than anybody else. Give me a yes if you agree that it's absurd, absolutely absurd, that we believe that we need somebody else to teach us about ourselves. Do you understand how backward that is? Do you all understand how crazy that is? Like, do you really get just how like it's it's weird it's it's like a mental illness and and uh and the more you look around and the more you see stuff kind of happening the more you realize the slave mentality is alive and well uh you have uh, some of your highest paid people in your community getting paid millions of dollars to go around the world call themselves the n-word and stand on the stage in front of a, a crowd full of white people and scream die n-word die and literally rapping and bragging about killing black people murdering black people slaughtering black people and putting them in prison and all that and and you don't think that's weird. We don't think that's strange. <laughs> I, that, that's a mental illness. I, I'm in Iceland this week. Uh, me and my girls are just taking a trip. We, we want to see the whole world. I, I want to take my kids as many places as I can and spend as much time with them before we get old. And uh, in Iceland, we were on the basketball court and there weren't uh, there weren't any black people there except for us. And they start playing the music and the music they were playing at the basketball court was it wasn't, you know, it, there was no white music. I didn't hear any Taylor Swift. I didn't hear any Sam, uh, Sam Sneed, whatever that guy's name is. I don't, even, I don't even know their names. I didn't hear like Britney Spears, and whatever, whoever the big white artists are. I didn't hear any Justin Timberlake or Justin Bieber. I heard black music and I didn't just hear black music. I heard African-American music. So I didn't hear reggae or Nigerian music, nothing from Africa. It was all African-American music of a particular genre and it wasn't R&B and nothing pop. None of that. It was all ratchet hip hop music. That's all it was. And all the men were rapping about, you know, shooting and killing and how much money, they, how many jewels they have and cars they drive. And the women were rapping about their, about, about how good they are in the bedroom. That's it. Like that's literally the image that's being projected to you about of you throughout the world. This is Iceland. Iceland. Most of y'all, how many of you, give me a yes if you've never been to Iceland. <laughs> give me a yes if you've never had a chance to go. I, I recommend it. I think it's a beautiful country, but I was really just so intrigued by how th this is their primary exposure to you. This is what they think about you. Uh, so I just really think as a community, um, I hope I'm not alone. I think that we need to uh, kind of talk about this more and really confront this more. Uh, and uh, shout out to some of the artists, the intelligent artists like David Banner. David Banner is a friend of mine. David had spoke about how he went overseas and saw 
how we were portraying the image of the African-American around the world. And, and, and then it makes perfect sense why they get over to this country and they don't like you before they even meet you. It makes sense that they get here and they say, oh, we got to stay away from those people. You know, you got to think about that. You know, so anyway, let me keep going. Hit the thumbs up button, thumbs up, share, subscribe. Just as an FYI, this podcast is on Spotify. So if you go to Spotify and you look up my name, you'll find me there. I'm really excited. We, we had our first million downloads. Uh, so that's pretty cool. You know, we're independent, black, small business, and we, we're reaching millions of people. And, um, and I started all this this whole business, everything that we do, I started that with my paycheck back when I was on the faculty at Syracuse University. And the other day, my wife and I did a, uh, an hour and a half long pillow talk. So if you scroll down, you can find it there. And also, it's, everything's going to be on Spotify as well. So uh, so feel free to find us on Spotify. So anyway, let me let me read here. I'm reading from this book. It's called uh, The Black History Reader uh, by Dr. Claude Anderson. Again, if you're teaching your kids black history, uh, this is the kind of book you should you should put in front of them. And uh, and this book explores or this section of the book, page 147, uh, question 47. Uh, he asks, did black Americans receive the same economic benefits as whites in the Franklin Delano Roosevelt 1930s New Deal? Uh, now, now, first of all, how many of y'all kind of know the answers already know? How many of y'all already know in the 1930s, black people did not get the same deal as white folks? We, we know that that's the case, right? We know that that's consistent. My grandmother was born, uh, my grandmother, Felicia, uh, we named our Panther in the black business school after my grandmother, uh, whose name was Felicia. She was the first person to teach me about economics. Like a lot of you are teaching your grandkids right now. Um, I honor my grandmother because of that. And she tells me about being born in 1936 in the Great Depression. And she said, we were so poor, we didn't even know that there was a depression because it was always there was always a depression for black people. Black people were always in the economic toilet. Black people were always uh, at, a, at a subordinate position economically to whites. Black people have always suffered economically. So it wasn't like, oh, things were good and then they suddenly got bad. It was like, oh, no, they were bad and they just got worse. So uh, so the Great Depression was a time of tremendous economic pain. And what's fascinating about America, and this is why. There's no debate on reparations. There's no debate at all. There is no like maybe hmm, I don't know how do we handle that. No, no, no. Do, do we really owe the money? No, we know that there's no debate at all. And uh, part of the reason there is no debate is because in the times where America was suffering economically, when even white people could not eat every day, black people were in a far worse position than whites. We were always in the worst position, you know, and uh, and, and we were also the ones who didn't get the support. And if you look at the pandemic. How many of y'all noticed during the pandemic how many black owned businesses could not get the funding that they needed? How many of y'all noticed during the pandemic how many black folks lost their jobs because maybe they didn't want to get that shot or whatever it was or, or you know, or, or they just couldn't work because their job said, well, you know, because of this virus, you can't we can't all congregate. And I get that. You want to keep people safe. But, Lord, I mean, how, how are you supposed to pay your bills? When when they're cutting everything, that's crazy. Right. And so this is, this, you know, this is some of the reason why um, in the black business school, we talk extensively about having your own business or training your children on this so that they can sort of have a plan B in case things go wrong. Uh, so so if you look at the pandemic and you look at the New Deal and you look at the Great Depression, the policies were not that different. The policies are not that different. And in both cases, one other similarity, you know, this is 100 almost about 90 years apart. One other similarity is that there was extensive political manipulation of black people, extensive manipulation of black people, uh, because black people have always been used for political benefit 
of other parties. We've always been a great political mule. We've always been the ones who were the first to carry the water. We were always the ones who could help people get into power, uh, but we weren't the ones who benefited from the hard labor. Okay, So this is another type of slavery that we've seen consistently, and it affects you not just economically, but also socially as well, as you've watched the, the absolute complete deterioration of black families in the last 40 years. Uh, you've seen it reflected in the music and the entertainment. You're seeing literally, uh, you know, 30 year olds now who are literally traumatized children whose parents were eaten up by the drug epidemic or mass incarceration, right? All of this is, is coming from policies, right? So anyway, do me a favor, hit the thumbs up button, thumbs up, share, subscribe. My name is Dr. Boyce Watkins. And by the way, my new book, it's a best-selling book on Amazon. It's called The Ten Commandments of Black Economic Power. You can find a copy if you go to drboycebooks.com. My kids in my house, we run our, our, our small family business out of my house. They will mail you the books to your house. So just go to drboycebooks.com. I have another series called Black American Money. And before I came to Iceland, I signed a bunch of books so they can, they're still shipping them uh, while, while we're traveling. So, uh, so you can have that delivered to your house if that's what you like. And also, in fact, you can use a discount code. Uh, use the code word book club book club, since this is kind of like a, our book club meeting, because I know some of you are in the book club and I, I can't do tonight because it's so late um, here, here in Iceland, but I decided to go ahead and read some stuff now um, instead of waiting, waiting until then. So you can use the code word book club, you get 30% off. So 30% off anything in the store, just go to drboycebooks.com. All right. So um, here's the question. Question 47. Did black Americans receive the same economic benefits as whites in the, in the Franklin Delano Roosevelt 1930s New Deal? Um, so Dr. Anderson says here on page 147 of his book, The Black History Reader, in President Franklin D. Roosevelt's 1932 New Deal program, black Americans, the people who have suffered the most during the Great Depression, received the least in benefits. The stock market crash in 1929 triggered the Great Depression that stalled economies around the world, closed factories and businesses and brought hard times for everyone's front door. This And it can happen again, by the way. So don't assume this can, this can only happen once. This nation's general un unemployment rate was pushed to 25% for whites uh, and was two, two to three times higher for blacks. So white people had 25% unemployment. Black people had an unemployment rate that was two to three times higher. It's, it's typically like that. Um, let's see. One third of the nation, one third of the nation was ill-fed, ill-housed, and ill-clothed. These conditions propelled Roosevelt, a strong believer in the role and power of the federal government, to campaign for the office of president of the United States. In 1932, his presidential election campaign, uh, Roosevelt, a Democrat. Now, back then, remember, black people still voting Republican, though. So uh, and also, I don't want to get into the whole Democrat versus Republican thing. I know that when I, we, we talk about the Democrats, there are people who say, oh, you must be a Republican. Just for the record, I'm neither one. But also just for the record, I don't tell you what to do. I've now give me a yes. If you understand, I'm not telling you who to vote for. I'm not telling you not to vote. I'm just telling you I have a right to do whatever I'm going to do. And, and that's OK. OK. And this is important because we also had conversations about things like the Tulsa real estate fund. I've said a thousand times I I did invest in that fund. I'm glad I did it. Uh, I love what they built with the black house. I don't, I'm not telling you to do it. I've never said you should always do what I do. I said that black businesses fail at a really high rate. 86% of all black businesses fail. Y'all do understand that, right? So most of the black owned businesses I've invested in, in the conscious community, unfortunately, more than half of them have not succeeded. 
But am I going to stop investing in black owned businesses in our community? No, because you need businesses in your community. If you don't have any businesses in your community, then you're always going to end up working for your oppressor. And if you keep on working for your oppressor, you will never gain the ability to stand up for anything. You will never have power in a capitalist society if you don't own the source of production. Do you understand what I'm saying? As long as you're always looking for the better job, looking to play in his sports league, looking to go and buy his consumer products, you're always going to be behind. You cannot compete with your daddy. The son cannot be more than the daddy. The, the, the daddy is the originator. To some extent, they are your economic daddy. That's what they are. They're your economic parents. They gave birth to you. They brought you in this world. They can take you out. Why? Well, because in American capitalism, their world is run by them. So when they bring you into their systems, you can never go into their system and have more power than the creators of that system. So again, they become your economic parents, your economic God, unless you start letting go of their economic religion and start believing in something greater than that, something that you actually create. If you can't elevate your thinking and go to that higher dimensional uh, setup, and you'll go from the third dimension to the fourth dimension or fifth, fourth to the fifth, then you're going to always lose. You must elevate your thinking. If you do not elevate your thinking, then you're always going to be behind. It's like me competing against a cockroach. The cockroach can't win. He can never be as tall as me. He can't see the world from a three-dimensional standpoint. I can always look down and look around and find him wherever he's at. He can't follow me everywhere because I can go up and down. He's on the ground. Do you understand what I'm saying? So ultimately, and I'm speaking as a mathematician here, and I don't want to talk over anybody's head, but that's what I literally see. The part of the reason that you can't win in the economic game a lot of times is because you're playing checkers and your opponent has been playing chess for a long time. And not only are they playing chess, but they design the whole chessboard. So every time you make a move, they just move. They just change the game because they control the game. They created the game. So if you want to win the game, you got to get out of the game and get into a different game. That's why I don't play those games. OK, so anyway, let me keep going. Y'all don't get me. Y'all don't get me going here. All right. Let's see here. OK, so here's what Dr. Anderson says. Page 147. Uh, the Black History Reader, Powernomics.com is his website. I hope y'all go make it rain on his uh, on his website because he's a genius. He's a brilliant man, and I love him so much, and I hope you love him too. Uh, let's see here. Um, in, in his 1932 presidential campaign, uh, Roosevelt, a Democrat, listen to this, he used rhetoric that gave blacks the impression that he was sympathetic to their economic needs. Roosevelt's slogans expressed a deep concern for the forgotten man and pledged a new deal for the people. Black Americans naturally but erroneously believed the broad terms forgotten man and the major and the, sorry and the people either referred to or included them. So he say he so they thought that when he said the forgotten man and the people they were talking about you. So this is another example of that illusion of inclusion, this false diversity. A lot of corporations did this back when they had to actually have diversity plans. Now they don't have to do this anymore. Affirmative action is gone. Now what you going to do? What's your what's your plan? What's your post affirmative action world plan? If you don't have one, you might want to think about it. All right. So anyway, uh, see, he says at the time, the majority of blacks belonged to the Republican Party, a continuation of their allegiance to Abraham Lincoln. But in the 1932 election, blacks abandoned the Republican Party and threw their votes to Roosevelt, who won the election with their support. Once again, black people to the rescue. Y'all been saving America since the beginning. Keep that in mind. All right. Uh, let's see. Let me let me jump back in. Let me let me find my spot here. See, my ADHD starts kicking in. Um, 
All right. So once in office, Roosevelt and his administration designed a New Deal program for the working class and the poor. However, as it turned out, Roosevelt's New Deal program did not have blacks in mind. Surprise, surprise. So Roosevelt's kind of the original Joe Biden, if you ask me. The New Deal did not address the government and culturally imposed reasons blacks were so poverty stricken in the first place and provided them only with a few low level jobs limited health care services, and minimal welfare benefits. Within a few short years of implementation of the New Deal, national surveys and social discomfort indicators revealed that in the midst of the Great Depression, economic conditions for blacks grew worse, and the gap between them and whites grew even wider. Why does that not surprise me? Is anybody is anybody surprised by this? Y'all just does this sound familiar? Let me know. Does this sound familiar to y'all? Does this sound like the same thing that happens today? Like maybe rising tide will lift all boats. I don't know, just stuff like that. Anybody, anybody, any of this sound familiar to y'all? So uh, it says Eleanor Roosevelt, the wife of Roosevelt, was sympathetic to, to the condition of blacks and tried to provide them an entree to her husband. She organized an informal group called the Black Kitchen Cabinet to meet with her and to advise her on black issues, which she presented in her own way to the president. By the 1940s, a significant number of blacks had lost faith in Roosevelt and began to call his new deal the dirty deal. Blacks had experienced a political lesson that in our competitive race based society, I'm going to underline this, in our competitive race based society, the social construct on race does not allow equal footing. White privilege is structural, whether conscious or subconscious. The socioeconomic outcomes are foreordained by race. So what do y'all think? You know, what I'm getting out of this is that nothing has changed. I mean, the playbook doesn't shift that much. Um, And the reason that they can go back to the same playbook every generation is because you don't know the history. And the reason you don't know the history is because they're not going to teach that to you in a public school. How many of you, give me a yes or no, how many of you went uh, learned about the New Deal in school? How many of y'all heard about Frank, Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the New Deal? Give me a yes in the chat if you've heard of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And as you do that, please hit the thumbs up button. And by the way, you're watching DrBoysTV.com, the home for intelligent black people. Uh, we, we're making movies now, and uh, we this is actually our sixth production. We have a movie called B1 the Movie coming out. And it's all about what it means to be black first. Uh, it stars a lot of great people like Riza Islam, Queen Afua, Madam President, Nuri Muhammad, Dr. Claude Anderson, Professor James Small. So it's, it's a must-see event for all B1 people throughout the world. This summer, we're going to do the uh, red carpet premiere in Atlanta on Marcus Garvey's birthday on August 17th. Uh, it's going to be a long weekend. We're going to actually have a four-day weekend down there. So feel free to go to Atlanta and uh, hang out with us and watch the film. Rizzo's going to be there and uh, some other people as well. Uh, I think Les Brown might be coming by as well. So God bless Les. I love that guy. Uh, so anyway, if you want to learn more, just go to B1TheMovie.com. Shout out to Rick Mathis, who is the director of the film. All right, so let me... Um, so, so a lot of you learned about the New Deal, right? Okay, a lot of you learned about FDR. Now, let me ask you this. How many of you learned about the racial disparities of the New Deal? Give me a yes or no. How many of you all learned that black people, after having their hopes up and then being disillusioned, started calling it the dirty deal? How many of you know that? And, and I bring that up because don't you know this consistent theme? Let's get black people's hopes up and then let's screw them after the election. Does anybody know? Do you, do you see the pattern here? Does this 
sound like it's something that happens in every election? Does it sound not like the boyfriend who shows up, you know, every time his girlfriend gets her welfare check and says, baby, baby, please, I love you. We're going to be together forever. You know, baby, we're going to get married and finally have that baby that we've been talking about. And I'm going to take you someplace nice, you know, and then and then he disappoints. And then for whatever reason, you keep forgiving him because maybe your self-esteem is not high enough for you to move on and realize there's other fish in the sea. Right. Uh, and I think that for black people, I think that we many of us have been led to believe that we don't have any other options. You know, and uh, and I, I become very concerned when I express this and I hear people say, well, what are we supposed to do? Go vote for the Republicans. And that bothers me because that tells me right there that you think that we only have two choices. And I just find that really fascinating that that's what that's one of the things that kind of led me to believe, like maybe maybe I'm just. Maybe I just maybe my thinking is a little bit different. Like maybe I can't I admit I don't know if I can connect to the masses anymore because I think the masses of our people, unfortunately, have been so brainwashed that we're kind of lost. Not everybody, but about 70 percent. I think 70 percent of our community isn't just isn't ready to really challenge authority. I, you know, and I, I started reading psychology studies. My wife showed me one that said the 70 70 percent of all people will follow an authority figure, even if the authority figure is wrong or will follow the crowd, even if the crowd is wrong. And so um, so really, I'm looking for that 30 percent. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm literally getting on the Internet saying, OK, are y'all out there? Um, because because this is crazy to me. It makes no sense to me. It doesn't it just I don't get it. You know, and and I, I think that some of it may just be due to fear or habit or, you know, maybe maybe type of Stockholm syndrome. I don't know. But I'm not judging how you vote. I'm not telling you that you can't vote for whoever you want. Maybe you have your own reasons to support the Republicans or Democrats or whatever. And that's OK. But I think it's also okay for people to say, you know, I really don't need to pick one right now. I can, I can, I can be independent. I can go and, you know, you got people out here, Cornell West and some other people running for office. I think it should be your right to do whatever you want because, you know, do you think politicians do whatever they want? Do you think, you know, if you feel beholden to the politicians, do you really believe they're beholden to you? Do you really believe they're beholden to you? And if they're not beholden to you, I just ask you, why are you so beholden to them? And this is almost like asking somebody about their relationship. You'd be like, well, why would you love somebody so much when they don't love you? Like that, I don't, I don't get that. Do, do you love yourself? Like what, what's really happening here? So I, I personally think that what Dr. Anderson's saying here um, is interesting because it sounded so familiar when he said, in our competitive race-based society, the social construct on race does not allow for equal footing. White privilege is structural, and whether conscious or subconscious, the socioeconomic outcomes are foreordained by race. So basically what he's saying uh, in the first part, uh, he says that race in itself is something that does not allow you to walk around thinking that you're white. You know, And that's something that, but what's interesting though is that when you go to school, you're constantly told you live in this integrated society. You're told that integration was the best thing in the world and that every that racism is a thing of the past and that you're just like everybody else. So you unfortunately go into life thinking, oh, I'm just like the white kid. So if I go and get the same degree and work just as hard, I'm going to get the same results. Now, how many, but, how many, but some of you had grandparents that knew better. And let me show you how. How many of y'all, give me a yes or no. How many of y'all ever had a grandparent who said you got to work twice as hard to get half as much? Did anybody ever have a grandparent like that? My grandmother, Felicia, God bless her. She used to say that to me all the time, that if you're black, you got to work twice as hard to get half as much. How many of y'all heard that? And, uh, and, and I bring that up because 
because what's interesting is like now you have some people who say when they hear that, they get mad. They say, that's not fair. That's not fair. And uh, and so so we get outraged. We get angry. Like, why should we have to work twice as hard to get half as much? And and I understand that. Right. It's not fair. It really isn't fair. You shouldn't have to work twice as hard to get half as much. But but sometimes having a grip on reality prepares you better than being born in the middle of a fantasy. Sometimes kind of knowing what it is in any relationship, sometimes when you know what it is, you're able to deal with it better than if you think it's something that it's not like, you know, it's nicer to like, look, you're like, okay, if I know that it's a one night stand, then I can make a certain decision. But, but if I think we're going to get married, but you think it's a one night stand, then that's going to be a problem because our objectives are misaligned. We're not, we're not seeing the same thing. And so to some extent, I believe that we are, we are hit by, I'm not going to use the word victim. I hate the word victim. I'm not, I'm not trying to be nobody's victim, but I think that we are fed a racial illusion from birth that makes us believe that if we do the work and show up every day and, and behave as good citizens that we're going to get the same treatment as everybody else. And, and, and the benefit that your grandparents had who didn't grow up before, who grew up before the civil rights movement, the benefit they have is they say, no, 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 we, 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 we know what's up. (laughs) We, we know how the game really works. Uh, You know, what you learned in school was a fairy tale. And when you find out that that fairy tale isn't real, you end up outraged. Like how many of you know black members of the black middle class who went to school, worked hard? Some of y'all are in that group, you know, who got the degrees and all that, who are just constantly pissed because every time you go to work, you see the white guy get the job you should have got. He gets the raise you should have got. He gets the promotion you should have got. And and it's, it's, it's frustrating. It sucks. Right. You know, because you've been typecast by society, you've been typecast as a black man. For example, we get typecast as rappers and basketball players and comedians. So when I show up as a black man with a Ph.D. as a professor, I have white and black people who just don't believe me, you know, who literally are just like either they don't care. That's not interesting or or they just like you ain't no real professor. You know, and and, and this is a problem you also have with black owned businesses. One of the reasons that we are harder on black owned businesses than we are on white owned businesses is because you also have typecast yourselves as employees, as opposed to actual owners of capital who can actually run a business and be the boss. So when a black man or black woman shows up and says, no, I'm the boss, the buck stops with me. I'm running this company. You look and you say, ah, that, that, that company's probably not, not that good. You know, they, they, they probably, there's probably something wrong with that. We can, I mean, come on. If they, if I was really good company, they wouldn't have no Negro running that business. And you know, because remember, all the while, there's like a purity that you assign to whiteness. Like you can look at corporations that, you know, have a, a fundamentally corrupt history that have done all kinds of horrible things throughout the years and never once have you sort of expressed outrage. And this, and this is where I, I had to draw the line, you know, in the discussion as I was sort of educating people on investing when it came to things like the Tulsa Real Estate Fund is to say, I get it if you have a concern, but I don't understand why we're obsessed with the small black business when there are billion dollar white owned companies that have done a hundred times worse for a much, much longer period of time. And you've never expressed any outrage about any of that. But for some reason you are convinced that this black business is public enemy number one. And I, and, and that, and and I'll, I'll stand on that point forever, you know? uh, And so ultimately what I'll say to you is that how, how people see you affects your outcomes. It affects your possibilities, especially within their system. Uh, also, how you see yourselves and how you see each other affects your economic outcomes. 
uh, in my book, and it's called The Ten Commandments of Black Economic Power. You can get it on my website, um, or I'll put the URL on the screen. One of the things I talk about is another word Dr. Anderson mentions in his book, and that word is culture. Culture. Culture is really important when you're talking about building things like wealth, building strong families, you know, things like that. Uh, some people, if you know, if you come from a culture where uh, there's no father in the house, then it's going to be harder to have a household where there's a father in the house. Why? Well, because you're having to learn a new culture. It's, it's no different from me going from being an accountant to being a rapper. In order for me to go from being an accountant to be a rapper, I have to learn from rappers. I have to spend a lot of time around rappers to learn how to carry myself like a rapper would as opposed to how an accountant would. Right. Because it, because the, an accountant's mindset isn't going to work in the hip hop space and the, a, hip, a rapper's mindset isn't going to work in the accounting space. So the same thing is true when you talk about family and culture. If you if you have a family construct that um, that, you know, to use that example with the father, that where the father is typically not there, you may get into a situation where you're like, I want the father to be there, but I don't know how to do that. And so the same thing is true with economics. Uh, when you have uh, a, a culture that pretty much says that your job is to be the consumer, to be the renter, and to be the worker, it is difficult to shift to a culture where, where you're not the consumer, you're now the producer. You're not the worker, you're now trying to be the boss. You're not the renter, you're trying to be the owner. And and so so not only is it tough for you because maybe you don't see yourself in that capacity, but it's tough for other black people because they also don't see you in that capacity. Uh, and then it's and then white people really don't see you in that capacity. So when you're making this change, let me just say this. You know, I I really believe that we're in the middle of one of the greatest black economic revolutions of all time. I believe that what we're doing right now in this generation is going to be remembered for 100 or 200 years. I really believe that, you know, I, I see what's happening in terms of, of greater conversations about wealth and economics happening. Uh, so many great platforms from Earn Your Leisure to what the, my friend, the Wall Street Trapper is doing and a lot of other people. I love it. Uh, and, and, and what's going to occur is that you are going to see some sort of divide. You're going to see a divide in terms of how rapidly people are able to adjust you know, to the possibilities because there's a wider range now of what it means to be black. So you've got one extreme of the black folks that are building strong families, that are building businesses, that are making investments, that are building wealth, that are de developing generational legacies. And then you have, you know, people that are, that are unfortunately, from my perspective, I almost feel like on like this race to the bottom. You know, uh, like I saw the other day, I something a picture I didn't understand. I saw Umar Johnson with, with uh, that lady, Suki Hana. And I'm not going to talk about it, but this lady, if you, I mean, she puts Cardi B to shame. She makes Cardi B look like a, like a like a like a nun, <laughs> you know, and and uh, and, and so it's so I, I but I listened to Sukihana. I listened to some of her interviews to understand where her mindset was and where she was coming from. And I mean, the lady just you know she's a prostitute pretty much. She has a song telling women if you have if you need money, just sell your sell your coochie, sell your good stuff, and somebody will pay your rent. And um, and then that's other things that she said. I'm not gonna go into all that. And of course, you know, white media loves it, so they're they're promoting this as the image of the black woman around the world now, uh, which is gonna make every person think black women all all act like this. And um, and and I and I'm really interested in seeing how that evolves. I'm not even saying I'm concerned. I'm not gonna be concerned about. It. I'm just interested, right? I'm interested to see how that plays out because you you are gonna have class divides that are gonna be pretty significant um and uh and 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 i can say that uh suki and people like that to me are a product of just a, a 30 40 year process of literally destroying and dismantling 
the image of what it means to be black. I, I think that the, all of this that you're seeing in the music, it comes right out of the crack era. It comes right out of mass incarceration. It comes right out of the poverty and and, and all the, the black on black homicides that happen in our communities. And, and, and where I would say politically we end up losing is that because we're so committed to having the Democratic Party as our political overseers. And again, I'm not I'm not applauding the Republicans here. This is not you know, I'm not, I'm not saying go vote Republican, but I'm saying that you're right now, your Democratic, your, your overseers are the Democratic Party. And what they do is they guide the conversations you're allowed to have because you have not yet established the sovereignty in your community to have the conversations that you really need to have. You haven't you don't allow yourself to say, yeah, I know that you told us that black on black crime doesn't exist, but homicide is the number five killer or number four killer. I can't remember of black men in this country. It's not homicide is not the number four killer of white women in this country. Homicide is not the number one killer of white men in this country. Homicide is the number one killer of, or sorry, number four killer of black men in America. So that means that maybe there's a possibility that despite the fact that Mr. White Man told us that black on black crime does not exist, that maybe it is a real thing, right? Maybe all my friends that got murdered by other black people, um, maybe that actually did occur and it wasn't just sort of my imagination that this is something that just that would have been just as likely had they been white. Right. And uh, and, and I, so I'm not telling you what your thoughts should be on that. I'm not telling you that I want to debate about that. What I'm saying is that part of the reason that you can't find the adequate solutions is because you're not given the range and the freedom psychologically. You have not claimed the range and freedom to have the conversations necessary to find the solutions. It's like it's like if I told you, hey, there's um. There, there's bugs in the house and, and you, you say, OK, well, let's go find the bugs. Right. Let's go find the roaches. And uh, and let's say that I go in the bedroom and, and I look around. I don't see any roaches. Then I say, let me go check the kitchen. And then and then let's say the person says, no, 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 no. Ain't no roaches in the kitchen. And you're like, yeah, yeah. But let me just check the kitchen anyway, just in case. And they're like, no, no, no there's no roaches in the kitchen. Just check the bedroom and the bathroom. And that's all you can do. And then you say, but we check the bedroom and the bathroom. There's no roaches in the bedroom and the bathroom. I need to search the whole house. And they said, no, 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 don't you worry about that. You just search in the bedroom and the bathroom, and that's all you're allowed to do. Well, that's kind of what they do with the black community. I think that they allow you to, when they when you say, gosh, you know, something's wrong in America. There's all these racial disparities and this racism and, and this discomfort and these economic problems and educational issues. How do we fix that? And then they say, oh, well, just, just vote for Joe Biden and that'll fix it. Or, or you say, gosh, there's so many health problems and you know, black people are dying left and right. Cancer, diabetes, strokes, heart disease, all obesity, all these things are killing us. And we got to fix that. And, and, and then you say, well, maybe maybe we should talk. Maybe we should deal with the the, the, the food and drug and uh, uh, food and drug administration and all these fast food restaurants that are selling us toxic food. And or, or maybe we should uh, implement a program where we can all you know push ourselves to exercise more for preventative maintenance. And then they show up and they say, no, 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 don't worry about exercise. Don't worry about uh, don't worry about the food. The food's fine. Uh, just get this shot. Get the Pfizer. Pfizer made a shot that will protect you from the virus. And uh, and just just go get the shot. If you go get the shot, then that's going to make everything OK. Right. So so what I'm saying here and I hope you get my point is that you're if you cannot explore all the possibilities of what will form an adequate solution then what's happened is they put you in a cage 
you're in a cage and you don't even see it. You're in a box where where your range of possible solutions is very limited. And I can tell you that, you know, I taught math at the University of Kentucky. And one of the things we that I learned very early in mathematics is that when you minimize the degrees of freedom and the amount of range you can apply to solve a problem, you are not going to find the optimal solution. Do you follow what I'm saying? You cannot optimally solve a problem if someone else imposes limits and constraints on how you go about solving that problem. It's like if I if I move into like when I get married, my wife, I love my wife and uh, and and she's and, and I just I, I like to just look at her because I just think she's gorgeous. And I, I love smart black women. And, and I got to marry one. And I'm honored by that. Well, you know, let me just tell you, my wife. There she is. She's a therapist. I need a therapist because just like every, a lot of other black people, I'm half crazy. She had three beautiful children and uh, I don't have pictures of all the kids, but that's one of them. That's Tater. Tay-Tay. I call it uh, Taylor Tay-Tay Tater. Those are the nicknames I gave her. And she's a dancer and and I love her and I love raising the kids. And, and it's a really fun experience. But let me tell you, you know, a discussion that we kind of had, you know, before I got married. The, the, the discussion we had was I said, look, um, I don't mind. I love the fact that you have kids. I think that's awesome. I said, but I'm going to need a certain amount of freedom and range as the one of the heads of this household to be able to help us manage these children. Because as you know, kids can be crazy, especially teenagers, right? There's a lot of work required. And I said, look, if, if I'm going to be limited like, you know how you, you marry somebody and they say, don't, you know, don't, don't you yell at my child. You don't correct my child. You don't tell my child what to do. You know, you got these parents that will go to school and wag their finger in the face of the teacher. Don't you be telling my child what they can and can't do. And then your child is out here just destroying the whole classroom and disrupting everything and acting a damn fool. But you but you're not giving the teacher the range and the freedom that they need to manage your child. Well, you know, that was a conversation I had with my wife. I said, in order for us to optimize uh, the raising of these children. I'm going to need a certain amount of authority. I don't need all the authority, but I need a certain amount uh, you know, that, that is going to allow me to implement policies in this space that are going to lead to optimal outcomes for these kids. And that's what we agreed on. And, and so, so, and I will tell you this, if it had been limited, like if she had said, no, 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 you, I will, I got my kids. You can't tell me what my kids can do. Da, da, I, I would have said, no, you know, okay, you know, it's all right, but I'm not, I don't want to do this. Okay. So I think that in your relationship with, uh, with the democratic party, I think in your relationship with your community, I think that one thing that has to occur for black people is that you have to demand the range and the ability to address your problems in any way that you see fit. You, you should be able to have any conversation you want to have. For example, when we talk about sexuality, everybody want to talk about gender and who they sleeping with and all this other stuff. Personally, I just I, I don't believe you have to tell everybody what you're doing in the bedroom. I'm sorry, Kiki Palmer. I love you. But I don't understand this idea that everybody is suddenly going out and revealing who they're who they had sex with last night. I don't I don't get it. I'm not judging. I just don't you know. It, it just that's I mean, I don't understand that world. Right. But we know where we got that from. She got that from the Hollywood culture. Right. Um, and that's what it is. But I think also um, if we wanted to have a conversation where we said, hmm, I wonder what the home environment can do or what role it might play in shaping the way our children view gender and sexuality. Like, like, you know, if you're raised a certain way, if you go, if you go through certain things as a kid, does that have any influence on your outcomes as you get older? So, for example, my um, my daughter had a friend who uh, she was um, 
you know, she she was she was a girl. She was born a girl, but she was pretty much a guy. She, you know, we talked about dude stuff, and and I liked her a lot. She was a really good person, but she was a he pretty much, if you know what I mean, right? And it's okay. I'm not judging that. People can do what they want. But one thing, one story she told me was she said that when she was young, somebody unfortunately she she didn't have a, the protection of a father in the house, and uh, I think one of her mother's boyfriends did something inappropriate to her, and because she was so traumatized from that experience. Uh, she said, she just made a decision and said, if I become a boy, I'm not kidding. This, this was a true story. She said, if I become a boy, then nobody can mess with me. Cause I'll be tough. Like a boy is, you know, so she would lift weights and be ready to fight and everything else. I'm curious about that. When I hear a story like that from, you know, coming from somebody that doesn't have any political agenda, that isn't trying to persuade me or anything. It's just casually telling me about an intimate conversation that she had with one of her best friends. I would like to explore that more. And what I notice is that they don't have those conversations. They don't allow you to have your own conversations. So part of the reason that we put together the uh, all black national convention actually is because I said, I wonder what it would look like if you had black people get together, smart black people get together and, and really solve our problems without interference from anybody else. Like, what if we just got together and we're just talking about stuff, just laying ideas on the table? You know, looking at best practices, you know, this is how you get better at something You know, with basketball or 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 running a business or anything. If you look at people that succeeded, you say, well, how did you do that? How does that work? You see a strong family. Well, what did you do? Let's reverse engineer that. What did you do that was different? I, I, I don't I, I really think that we need to do that more often. And I think we need to do it in a way that isn't sort of um, constrained by a type of imperialism that other people want to thrust upon us where they say, yeah, you could talk about it, but you can't, you can talk about this, but you can't talk about that because if you talk about that, we're going to label you as a person who's spreading misinformation. No, I don't No, Don't, don't, don't tell me who spread misinformation and who's not. Let me hear the information. And then I'll decide if the information does not fit me. When somebody restricts you from information, I don't think that that person is your friend. So I would encourage you to just kind of think through that and and, and consider what I'm saying. I'm, I'm not asking you to agree with me. Uh, I'm a complete believer in freedom of thought. Uh, but I think that part of the reason I like to talk to you guys is because uh, those of you that that are that are trying to figure this out is because I, I, I feel like maybe as as a professor, I can contribute some things. Right. And as a human being, as a black man, I can say some things that might help you see things a little bit different. Okay. All right. So anyway, do me a favor, hit the thumbs up button, thumbs up, share, subscribe. My name is Dr. Boyce Watkins. You're watching drboystv.com, the home for intelligent black people. Hit the notification bell. You Please hit the notification bell. It's really important. <coughs> I hope you're getting notified. If you hit the notification bell, let me know if you, if you're getting notified because I, I can't, it's hard for me not to believe that I can have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of subscribers and, and only, you know, a few a hundred people or a couple hundred people come in. Um, and so I think that a lot of it's because uh, I think there's shadow banning and all kinds of stuff. I think there's a lot of sort of slick stuff sort of happening. And last time I read Dr. Anderson's book out loud, that's what caused the Instagram page to go down. But I do have another Instagram page. It's uh, Dr. Boyce Finance. So feel free to follow me on Instagram. And also you can find me on Spotify. So we're, we're kind of ready for this stuff. Uh, we, we have multiple platforms, so I'm not, it's, you know, when one, one goes down, we just go, go to another one. Uh, so you, you gotta always keep it moving, always be prepared. Uh, also, if you'd like to learn more about the all black national convention, uh, you can just go to allblacknationalconvention.com and I'll put that URL on the screen in case you want to go and take a look and see what the lineup looks like for this year. Um, I don't have it right here, so I can't put it on the screen. Sorry about that. I, I would normally put, there we go. 
Here we go. All right. So, um, so, so let me, let me sort of conclude with this. Let me, let, let's finish up this conversation, kind of wrap it up. So what, what I read here with Dr. Anderson's book and the book is called the black history reader. His website's powernomics.com is that I don't think it's, it's fascinating to me because when you look at things that are happening now in terms of black people and our relationship to politicians, most of what's being done has already been done before. That's what I'm picking up from this, that that it's that's always, you know, stuff that where they read up on what FDR did. and They say, OK, this worked for him. So we're going to try this again. Uh, you know, I saw lots of elements of Barack Obama's campaign where I could see him channeling Abraham Lincoln. I also saw him. Well, he's from Illinois, too. Right. I saw him channeling John F. Kennedy. Right. Um, I saw him channeling even a little bit of Bill Clinton. And uh, and so I think that this sort of this is kind of a model. Right. And uh, and what's interesting about this model is that it does work every single time. We I don't think we can stop the uh, I don't think we can stop the model. I don't think we can stop everything. And uh, and it's funny. Some one of you all mentioned something else is interesting. A lot of people don't know. Uh, Lauren Ellis says here, that's a fair statement. The Democratic Party was started by the KKK. I don't know if it was started by the KKK. I got to look that up. But I'm, I'll, I mean, you, you're saying it so we, we can. But we should all research, research that just to be sure. But I don't know for sure. But however, let me say this. When Jesse Owens, any of you all know this, Jesse Owens uh, in his book, he said that when he went to the Berlin Olympics, did anybody ever hear that story where Jesse Owens went to Berlin and he, he beat, um, he beat the, the other, the other guy. Uh, hold on. Yeah. So, so he, he beat the, the German guy in the, in the Olympics and, and everyone said that the story is that Hitler was just furious because this black man had sort of, you know, I guess defeated his idea of Aryan supremacy. Anybody ever heard that story? Jesse Owens basically said that story is not true. He said it did not happen that way. Uh, he actually he said that when he um, was in hit in Germany, he said actually that Hitler uh, shook his hand, sent him an autograph picture. Congratulations. Great race. Whatever. Right. He said, actually, it was my own president who would not meet with me. He said it was my own president. And then they started and then in this documentary I was watching, they started talking about how many presidents, how many former presidents were affiliated deeply with the KKK, either as members or or connected somehow. You'd be amazed. Um, I, I know Woodrow Wilson, his name came up big time in that whole racism thing to the point where Princeton University has been challenged by the black students, if I'm not mistaken, for having a school named after Woodrow Wilson, their public policy schools uh, named after Woodrow Wilson. And the man was a flat out racist. You know, and so you talk about trying to win this game of political chess. You're a piece on this chessboard and the chessboard is running controlled by people who hate your guts. How in the hell do you think you're going to win? How, I mean, there's no way you can win that game. Right. So let me see here. How many presidents were members of the KKK? And please hit the thumbs up button while I type this in. Let me see here. Five U.S. presidents were members of the KKK. Who were they? Let's see. Uh, the names that are coming up here. Um, they, they're, they're trying to say Truman, but I'm not going to say that without confirming that. Right. Um, I, I want to I'm trying to look to see if there's like any like verified information here that I can find easily. Um Okay, here we go. Here's a list of notable members of the Klan 
uh, that were in, involved in United States politics. So they said in 2018, the Washington Post reported that by 1930, uh, the KKK, while its membership remained semi-secret, claimed 11 governors, 16 senators, and 75 congressmen evenly split between <laughs> the Republicans and the Democrats. Uh, let's see, some some names that pop up. There's a guy, uh, let's see, they said, in 1921, Hugo Black successfully defended E.R. Stevenson in his trial for the murder of a Catholic priest. Uh, Stevenson's daughter had been, okay, I don't know why they're talking about that. Black got Stevenson acquitted in part by arguing to the jury that Puerto Ricans should be considered black under the South's one-drop rule. Black joined the KKK shortly afterward in order to gain votes from the anti-Catholic element in Alabama. Oof, man, this is deep. Uh, I'm looking for some names that I recognize here. There's a guy named Theodore Bilbo. He was a U.S. senator from Massachusetts. Uh, Joseph E. Brown, a senator for Georgia, uh, was a key supporter of the Klan. Robert C. Byrd. Now, that's a guy who's actually not. I mean, I think I don't know if he's still alive. He, he was, or or maybe he just recently died. Uh, they said he was a U.S. senator from West Virginia. He was a recruiter for the Klan in his 20s and 30s, rising to the title of Klegel, K-L-E-A-G-L-E, an exalted cyclops of his local chapter. After leaving the group, Bird spoke in favor of the Klan during his early political career. Though he later said he officially left the organization in 1943, Bird wrote a letter in 1946 to the group's imperial wizard stating, quote, the Klan is needed today as never before, and I'm anxious to see its rebirth here in West Virginia. Bird attempted to explain to defend his, his former membership of the Klan in the 1958 U.S. Senate campaign when he was 41 years old. Bird, a Democrat, eventually became the party leader in the, the he became the party leader in the Senate. Now, mind you, he was a Democrat. Y'all, y'all get this. And this was after black people switched over to the Democratic Party. So this is what you did. These are your allies, y'all. By the way, these are your allies. Um, <laughs> so this Democrat named Byrd, um, they said that after his death, the NAACP released a statement. Oh, wow. Check this out. This this is deep. This really tells you a lot about your politics. So listen to this. Uh, Byrd, a Democrat, eventually became his his party leader in the Senate. And so he was supportive of the Klan. He became the party leader in the Senate and he was a Democrat. He later said joining the Klan was his greatest mistake, though. And after his death, the NAACP released a statement praising Byrd, acknowledging his former affiliation with the Klan and saying that he, quote, became a champion for civil rights and liberties and came to consistently support the NAACP civil rights agenda. So that says a lot about the NAACP, doesn't it? In a 2001 interview, Byrd used the term white, and the word rhymes with wigger, it's the, the N-word, white N-words twice during a national television broadcast. The full quote ran as follows, quote, my mom told me, Robert, you can't go to heaven if you hate anybody. We practice that. There are white N-words. I've seen a lot of white N-words in my time. I'm going to use that word. We just need to work together to make our country a better country. And I just assume quit talking about it so much. I Okay. Anyway, let's keep going. There's a guy named uh, Josh, or sorry, John Gordon Brown. He was a U.S. Senator for Georgia. He was the founder of KK, the KKK in Georgia. Uh, John, James Thomas Heflin. Uh, was a U.S. senator for Alabama, suspected of being a member of the Klan, Ruf, Rufus Holman, a senator from Oregon. There's a lot of names here. I'm not going to read all the names. There's so many Klansmen, you can't keep up with them all. Um, now, they have some non-Klan members who supported the Klan, and I'm still looking for names that, that I recognize. I'd like to see the presidents, because I, I know that there were some presidents that were members of the Klan or connected. Uh, let's see, I'm scrolling and scrolling. Warren G. Harding, that's one president. 
They said the consensus of modern historians is that Warren G. Harding was never a member of the Klan and instead was an important enemy of the Klan. While one source claims Warren G. Harding, a Republican, was a KKK member while president, that claim is based on a third, third-hand account of a second-hand recollection in 1985 of a deathbed statement made sometime in the late 1940s. Okay, so I think we can let him off the hook. Um, let's see, I'm looking here. Uh, okay, in their 2005 book, Freakonomics, University of Chicago economist Stephen D. Levitt and journalist Stephen D. J. Dubner alluded to Warren Harding's possible Klan affiliation. However, in a New York Times Magazine Freakonomics column entitled Hoodwinked, does it matter uh, if an activist who exposes the inner workings of the KKK isn't open about how he got those secrets? Dubner and Levitt said that they no longer accepted Stetson Kennedy's testimony about Harding and the Klan. So I, I don't. OK, In interesting. All right. So let's see here. Uh, let me keep scrolling. Calvin Coolidge. Another they, they claim this is this is all this is Wikipedia. Right. So this may not all be true, but let's just read it anyway. Uh, Calvin Coolidge, one common misconception is that President Calvin Coolidge was a Klan member, claimed that the Klan websites have spread. In reality, Coolidge was adamantly opposed to the Klan. Uh, OK. All right. Harry S. Truman, the Democrat, the Democratic politician who became president in 1945, was accused by opponents of having dabbled with the Klan briefly in 1924. He was a judge in Jackson County, Mississippi. Truman was up for reelection. His friends Edgar Hindy and Spencer Salisbury advised him to join the Klan. The Klan was politically powerful in Jackson County, and two of Truman's opponents in the Democratic primary had Klan support. Truman refused at first, but paid the Klan's $10 membership fee, and a meeting with a Klan officer was arranged. Okay. Um, so they said Truman was inducted, but afterward was never active. Uh, he was just a member who wouldn't do anything, according to Salisbury. According to Hindi, uh, and Margaret Truman's accounts, the Klan officer demanded that Truman pledge not to hire any Catholics or Jews if he was reelected. And they, they claimed Truman refused, blah, 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 blah. All right. So so what's interesting to me here is it seems to me that maybe around some part of the early 20th century, an affiliation with the Klan became toxic, that you didn't go around and tell everybody that you had this connect, that you were a part of, of, of that. Um, you know, and and what's what I'm speculating and I think you can agree with this, is that, uh, you know, you don't you can't just look at who somebody says that they are, what they're what they're personally affiliated with. Maybe you look at what their friends are affiliated with. But that's tough because that's still guilty by association. We can't end up being forced to account for every single thing that our friends do. But I do think that uh, when you talk about Joe Biden's history with um What's that guy's name? Strom Thurmond and how he talked about Strom Thurmond like he was a mentor. And, and that was, you know, his best buddy. And Strom Thurmond was very vocal about his feelings about black people. And then at the same time, Biden pushed forward with policies that were very harmful to the black community, like his whole war on drugs and everything else. I, you know, I think that there's there's something there. Right. And then really, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if we find the smoking gun of whether or not you were a Klansman. Like, I, I think that's kind of minuscule compared to the broader evidence of saying the black community is stuck in this subordinated state. The black community, uh, a lot of neighborhoods, you go to Chicago, a lot of the black neighborhoods are torn down, shot up, just disrespected on every level. And what if, for whatever reason, we keep supporting the politicians who allow this to happen. That's all I need to know. I don't really need to know if you're a member of the Klan or not. All I know is that 
you're doing things that the Klan would probably approve of because they hate black people too. They don't want black communities to prosper either. They want black families destroyed too. They want black men in prison too. They want to see black people dead also. So, so maybe you're not a member of the Klan, but you're doing work that would be approved by the Klan. And the, the last point I'll make on this too, in terms of solutions, is that one thing you got to look at is yourselves. At the end of the day, when we're always talking about this stuff, it's always important that we look in the mirror. And uh, and I encourage you to really consider that the reason that nothing gets built in your community is because our time is being spent elsewhere. If you're a mother and you're spending no time with your kids, then why would you be surprised if your children aren't getting what they need? You know, if why would you be surprised your, your kids are running the street? Why would you be surprised your kids are malnourished? They, they don't have a parent. There's nobody there. There's, there's not a caretaker looking after that child. That, that child is not prioritized. So so you look at how many millions of black people get up every day, leave their community, leave their house and go work for a big white corporation and completely forget about the black community until maybe the weekend or something. It's time to party or whatever. I don't know. Um, then why would you think the black community would be able to grow with that? Nothing can grow without investment. Uh, without attention, without nurturing, no, nothing, nothing, nothing can go. No, no brand can grow. Uh, you know, Disney owns several multi-billion-dollar brands that are literally just cartoon characters like Mickey Mouse, Minnie Mouse, Donald Duck, Snow White, Cinderella. You know, Moana, <laughs> the Black Panther. They they own all these multi-billion-dollar brands. Do you think that those brands would have become multi-billion-dollar brands if everybody at Disney? went to go work for Microsoft every day and was pouring all their talent into building Microsoft. What do you think? Do you think that that company could have grown if nobody was paying attention to it? So your attention and your energy and your time and your skill, those are all valuable commodities and you gladly give them away for other, to other people. And part of it uh, you know, comes from a lot of it. A lot of it really comes from culture because the culture breeds the kind of short-sighted thinking where you're so busy thinking about how to get a paycheck for next week that you're not thinking about building anything for the next generation. And, uh, and this, a similar thing that happens in our politics in America, which is why America is a country on the decline, is that your politicians aren't thinking about how their, their financial choices are going to affect the next generation. They're thinking about getting reelected. They're not thinking about things like climate change, because who cares what the earth looks like in the year 2100? They don't care. Uh, they're not thinking about uh, the long-term effects of not educating children. They're just like, ah, I can, I can get this money and go and do my thing and, and live my best life. Right. So, so at some point, somebody, not everybody, but somebody has to be thinking about the future. And what I want to encourage you to try to do to be able to play a uh, four or five dimensional chess, it's really five dimensional. It's not four dimensional, but I won't explain why. If you want to play five dimensional chess, I need you to spend time imagining what, your legacy and what your family and what our community can look like in the year 2070, the year 2075, the year 2080. I want you to really think about that and kind of meditate on that. And then imagine what it, what's required to, to be done now in 2023, 2024, 2025 to create that world in the year 2070 or 2075. And, and, and people who can think that way on a regular basis are the people who tend to be most successful because they start making decisions the where they'll sacrifice a little bit today so they can have a lot more tomorrow. So make those tiny sacrifices. I, I think that's going to be the, 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 the key. 
Um, I know in the Black Business School, one thing that we're doing now is we're making partnerships to bring back more trades. I, I want to really start looking at uh, some of these trades for builders. We need builders. Uh, you know, you can't build a community if you don't have builders. If everybody is an employee, that's not you. Employees can't build things. They can go work for things that are already built. So effectively, uh, we're, we're working on a partnership with some people. I think you're going to like it when we announce it, uh, where they're going to help folks get certified in things like HVAC, um, ele electrical, carpentry and plumbing. And uh, and I think this should be an important part of our entrepreneurship conversations. In my mind, if whatever you're doing is isn't at some point on some level building something for your family and or your community, then in my mind, it just doesn't matter. It just doesn't add up. You know, like I, I loved um, I'm going to tell you what Floyd Mayweather, I, I have mixed. I end up having mixed feelings about Floyd. I see he's trying to evolve and I'd love to help him. But then sometimes I, I he'll do stuff and I'll say, oh, my God, what, what the hell? Anyway, so let me tell you what Floyd Mayweather did. that was interesting. Floyd Mayweather goes to South Africa, right? Did y'all see where he went to South Africa? And he gets there. And he says something really good. I really was happy. He was he was coming in. They were play, doing all the tribal dances and everything. And he was dancing along and whatnot. And then he says something about the fact that the people in South Africa should get their land back, which is absolutely 100 percent true. It makes absolutely no sense that so many non-black people own so much of South Africa that I mean, if that ain't colonialism kicking you in the face, I don't know what is that 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 to me is the craziest level of disrespect imaginable. Right. But anyway. So he says this and I'm like, that's good. I'm glad he said that. Okay. Nice, nice job. Then I saw another video <laughs> where he, he, they said that he spent $7 million in the Gucci store and he had to be escorted out of the country by special forces. Cause, cause you know, if they know you got $7 million with the Gucci, they, they will show up and rob your ass in a lot of these countries. Right. And so Floyd, Floyd comes out of the Gucci store surrounded by all these guys with big machine guns. And I'm sitting there thinking, so wait a minute. So you go to an African country and spend $7 million on European products. Why is that not making sense to me right now? That sounds insane to me. Um, but I'm not, but you know, I don't know everything he did. So maybe he did some other stuff that was good, but we know who owns Gucci. Gucci is owned by a person you should learn about and pay close attention to. His name is Bernard Arnault. And Bernard Arnault um, is French and he um, he's very family oriented. He practices a lot of our B1 Poweronomics principles. You know, he uh, he is, is leaving his $200 billion fortune to his family and his children. And Bernard Arnault, since his children were kids, he he ran his household like a like a business. He, he was preparing his children to be CEOs. He wasn't spending no time teaching them how to go work for other people and all this other stuff. He was preparing his kids, you know, grooming them in a, in a positive way, using the positive, you know, grooming has negative connotations, but it wasn't negative. It was positive grooming in the sense of getting them ready to run multi-billion dollar empires. He would meet when they became adults. He would have a meeting with his kids once a month and uh, and talk through everything they were doing and working on and then decide if they were ready to take over certain parts of the company. So I think his daughter now runs the Chanel brand. And so he just literally handed his daughter this billion dollar um, asset to run. And I, I just really think that that's something to pay attention to, right? 
And, uh, and, and, and of course, most of us can't hand our kids a, a 10, 15 billion dollar company, but maybe you can hand them a 10, 15,000, hundred thousand dollar company, right? Maybe there's something that you can hand them. You could say, okay, you know, we, we've been trained on delegation and everything else. There's a book called Traction, a really good book called Traction that I read to, that teaches you a lot about how to delegate, how to build a structured organization. Uh, and, and so one of the things I believe is that if you're raising your child to be, if you're raising your kids, you got to kind of ask yourself in terms of economics, am I raising a worker or am I raising a boss? You know, am I raising a good employee or am I raising a good CEO? And uh, because a good CEO is going to have to have a different kind of education from a good employee. A good employee is, is going to have to know how to show up to work on time, how to fill out the job application. They're going to have to make sure they get their college degree so that somebody will hire them. They're going to know how to how to have to know how to survive in a corporate culture, how to you know deal with their boss and stuff like that. Right. A good CEO has to have skills that are just very, very different. They have to understand things like delegation. How do you delegate tasks to other people and make sure you can trust them to do their job and hold them accountable? How do you manage relationships with other people so that you can do business deals with others, repair relationships or figure out where the synergies might exist or how to um, or how to manage your team properly? I talked to a, a black woman who works for another black woman and, and they're really mad at each other. And uh, and I said, you know, how long has she been in business? She runs a nonprofit. I said, how long has she run this nonprofit? She said, oh, she's run it less than three years. And um and basically, my conclusion was, I said, she, it sounds like she never learned how to delegate. Uh, we learn how to work hard because that's what employees do. We're the hardest working people in the history of this country. But we don't learn how to delegate, which is where you're working differently. You're still working hard, but you're also working with a team. Right. And that requires just a different mindset. And so I think personally that if you're raising your kid to be a boss, a leader, a, you know, a CEO, an executive of their own empire, a builder, also a builder. A builder has to understand that, you know, that when they get to a space, there may be nothing there and they have to be able to visualize what could be there and figure out how to develop something that's actually going to work. Right. So like even on a basic level, this hotel that I'm in, the builders had to go to a blank slate, like just an empty piece of land. And then draw and then design the building and figure out how to set up the plumbing and the electrical and the HVAC and everything else. And then they had to fill out the forms for the LLC to start a business. Then they had to figure out how to do marketing, how to get customers, uh, how to serve those customers, how to generate revenue. And now you have this company here, this thing that was built where people can come and apply for jobs. So, um, so really, I would encourage you to really break away from the system, just get out of it. Like literally just say to yourself, like, okay, I want my kid to be an owner, a boss and everything else. I need to design a whole new curriculum for them. I need to expose, to expose them to a lot of different things. Um, big picture thinking, that's a, that's another important part of it, right? It's because when you're the boss, you, you're not a, just a cog in the wheel. You got to look at the whole layout. You know, and I, in fact, I, I give credit to Ice Cube for this. This is one of the reasons why Ice Cube is worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And created the big three league and all that stuff. Uh, one thing I heard Ice Cube say in, in, in his interview with Joe Rogan, I haven't talked to Cube in a while, but but uh, maybe I'll, I'll reach out to him and just see what he's up to. But uh, one thing he said in the interview with Joe Rogan that I thought was interesting, reflective of the mindset was he said uh, that when he makes a movie, he doesn't want to just be a piece of the movie. He doesn't want to be an actor that plays a part. He said, I want to go in the kitchen and cook everything. I want to see how everything's piece together. So he's a big picture thinker. 
right? So even that ability to think big on a higher frequency, a higher level, this is where I go back to earlier when I was telling you, being a higher dimensional thinker, you're not, you know, most people might be thinking on two dimensions. Maybe if you're thinking on three dimensions or four dimensions, you have an advantage, right? Uh, like, uh, for example, if I'm looking, I, I go back, I mentioned this example earlier. I lay it out again because it's appropriate now. If I'm looking at a roach on the floor, all he sees is the world in two dimensions. He sees left and right, and he, or he can go straight forward or whatever. But all he sees is the floor. He can't, he can't move up and down. He can only move laterally or vertically or laterally. That's all. Those are his only options. I have an advantage over him because I'm a three-dimensional creature. So as a three-dimensional creature, I can get down on the floor with you, but I can also look up, rise above you. And if I was a fourth dimensional creature, not only could I rise above you, but I, I could actually maybe go back in time. Right. Uh, you know, and, and if I'm fifth dimensional, I can go up an even higher level than that. So that ability to think bigger on a higher level. This is where when we talk about what frequency you're operating on, what dimension is your mindset on? Uh, I, I want you to talk about your kids and, or, and, and help them to understand how to see the world on a higher plane of existence. Seriously, on a high, just on a higher dimension, they have those thoughtful conversations where they can grow and get around people that are going to really help them really see the big picture. Uh, because because small minded thinking is that's a great way to become a slave. You know, if you want to manage your slaves, you just keep them like in a little box and keep them focused on one or two little things. And that's all they'll do is they'll think about the one little thing that's in front of them and they won't see the whole chessboard. OK, and I don't think that America is designed to put workers in a space where they can see the whole chessboard. Rich people see the whole chessboard. We see like whether or not I got a job on Tuesday, what the price of bread is, you know, at the grocery store, you know, things like that. Um, but there's a whole lot more to the game than that. Right. So so teach them how to play the game at the highest level. That's what I want for you and your kids. And I think that if you do that, I think you're going to find that they're going to have an easier pathway to success than other people. The things that are hard for other people are going to be very easy for them. Um, uh, actually, I, I'll give you one more example and then I'm going to go. But could you do me a favor, please, and hit the thumbs up button, hit the notification bell. Uh, also, um, I, I send out profit alerts periodically on stocks that I'm buying. I sent one out, uh, I think it was this morning. And so if you'd like to get those profit alerts, uh, just text the word stock to 31996. Because, you know, I wrote my dissertation on the stock market. I buy stock almost every other day. So uh, just text the word stock to 31996. And I'll, sorry, uh, I'll send you some profit alerts. Um uh, on stocks that I like and stuff like that. Let me give an example where higher level thinking really helped me a lot in my life. When I was in college and I got to college and I, I made terrible grades in, in high school, my grades were really bad. And, um, because I just didn't like school and, uh, but I got to college and I had a baby when I was 18 and I wanted to not be broke and I didn't want to go back to work at Taco Bell and all this other stuff. So I was trying to figure out this academic game, like how to how to do well in school. I'd never done it before. And I thought college was going to be really hard because I was like, if I can't even do high school, how am I going to do college? And uh, and so what I did was I completely went outside of whatever they were giving us. Like they had all these programs at University of Kentucky on for minority students on how to do well, because back then they used the word minority a lot. Um, and I heard all that, but it didn't you know, it, the, the the standard was like, we want to make sure you have a GPA of 2.5 or higher or something. And I wanted something different. And I remember I kind of had my own system. I just went outside of the system and came up with my own view of how to do well in a class. And uh, and what I did was I compared it to two things I knew pretty well. One was I knew how to work hard because I worked at these fast food restaurants like Taco Bell and stuff like that and Wendy's. 
And so I, so hard work was never a problem. You know, my, my family raised us on that. And then also, um, uh, I was an athlete. I played a lot of sports. So I always knew from sports, sports is great for preparing you for life, you know, hard work, goal setting, you know, overcoming obstacles, all this stuff. And, um, and so I remember thinking, okay, how, how many hours a day do I want to study? How many hours a day do I have to study to make good grades? And so I, I was thinking like, well, if I go to Taco Bell and I work, you know, and I work like five, eight hours, I can do that. So I can study for four hours. That's easy. And because I don't even have to stand up. I go to Taco Bell and work eight, eight nine hours on my feet. Your feet are hurting. You, you smell like tacos also. So. And, um, and that, so that's when I started studying at least four to five hours a day. I didn't know that most college students don't do that. Most college students, you know, especially the freshmen, they might study five hours. Some of them study less than four hours a week. <laughs> so so that right there put me ahead of everybody else. And then the other thing was um, from sports, I just learned about setting goals and, and working hard. Right. So I, I would just um, I would get ahead. I, I, I realized if I start reading my stuff now, I could be ready for the test in three or four weeks. And I didn't know in college the culture was you just cram. You try to learn everything right before the test. And so I was shocked when I was when I had the highest grade point average out of all the black students on campus. That that was a shock to me because I was like, but I'm not that smart. Like, how the hell do I have higher grades than this girl who made straight A's in high school, whatever? And what I realized was that they didn't have any discipline because all through high school, their parents had forced them to, to do stuff. My parents didn't force me to do anything in, in that in that particular regard. They didn't they didn't really question me on my grades. Like I was kind of living like a grown man at the age of 16. I was running the streets, could have got into all kinds of stuff. I don't know if that's such a great endorsement of their parenting, but that's kind of what it was. And um, and also I noticed that because I thought differently, because I completely went outside the system and I was looking at things from a different dimension, everything that was hard for everybody else was really easy for me. Like it's very easy to do well in college if you're studying four to six hours a day. It's a piece of cake. And I remember thinking, why wouldn't I study four or six? You know, people say, oh, you study so hard. And you, why are you so serious? Why? This is when I started learning about culture, because I learned that most of my friends, unfortunately, did not just didn't work hard in school. And they would they would they thought that was weird and they would make fun of me for studying so hard. And I was like, well, do you want to be a slave for the rest of your life? Because I remember thinking if I work hard now, I can live good for the rest of my life from the hard work that I do over the next four years. But if I'm lazy now, I'm going to have to work hard for the next 45 years to make up for the opportunities I wasted when I was young. And that was my thinking. Right. And uh, and so what I ended up doing was, I, I mean, going through college was a breeze. My, my, my GPA was really high. I'd, I'd, I would take I would I would take like 24 hours and credit hours in a semester. And I got three, I had three, three majors, all this other stuff. And people were like, how do you do it? How do you do it? And really, if, when I look back on that, it was it literally just came from having a different standard from everyone else and thinking differently, having the courage to be different. And, uh, and the greatest benefit that I had was that I did not fit in to any particular group. White people didn't like me that much because I was too black. Black people didn't like me too much because they thought I was white. They thought I was acting white. So that was my story. And so I was liberated. Again, this goes back to what I was talking about earlier. When you have more freedom, more range to solve a problem by approaching it with a creative and different kind of approach, because you're not constrained by bad culture or by what people think or what everybody's telling you to do, you can find solutions. Hard problems become very easy if you give yourself the freedom to solve the problem by any means necessary using any tool that God gave you. God gave you a whole range 
of perspectives and possibilities that you can consider. You just got to stop being scared of what these other idiots think. Seriously, if you're trying to get out of the cage, you cannot listen to the other inmates because clearly they don't know how to get out. Because if they knew how to get out, they wouldn't be locked in the cage with you. So what I'm saying to you is that that freedom, give that to your kids, number one. Um, I think, you know, one thing I just say is I, I believe a, a strong black child needs to be taught to be a leader so that when they get around people that are trapped by culture, they're going to just say, no, nah, I'm not doing that. No, you, y'all all smoking and drinking and popping pills. I don't I'm not doing that. Right. Uh, oh, you you sitting there, you you sleeping around with all these girls and catching diseases and getting girls pregnant and all that. I don't I'm not going to do that because I know that that does not end well. You need you need. I think that that ability and I didn't even know that I had that. I mean, it was it wasn't like I I didn't really gain. I have a lot of confidence now, which which was really derived from self-love. It comes from accepting your flaws and just loving yourself warts and all like you can't just love yourself when everything's going good. You got to love yourself when you fuck up. Excuse my French. I don't mean to cuss, but but you got to love yourself in all situations. Right. Uh, And so so the confidence that I have now comes mostly from self-love. Back then, I was still developing that. And what I learned over time was that part of the pathway to developing that confidence came from the fact that when you don't really fit in, you get used to not needing to fit in. I didn't need to fit in with anything. I got invited to join every single fraternity on campus. Every black fraternity specifically sought me out and invited me to join their frat, the Alphas. I remember sitting down with Jason from the Alphas who tried to talk me into being an Alpha. I didn't do it. Uh, Gerard tried to ask me to become a Kappa. Uh, a guy named Daryl asked me to become a Sigma. Is it Sigma? Yes, Delta Sigma. Not Delta Sigma. You know, Sigma. I, some Sigma. What, I don't. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I don't know all the Greeks. Aaron asked me to be a Q. And um, and I was like, so I would just look at it from my own perspective. I was like, so this doesn't make sense to me. Um, So you're telling me that you're going to spend six weeks beating my ass, waking me up in the middle of the night to make me do serve you, um, <laughs> ruining my GPA, which is all I got right now. I don't have anything. I don't have any money. Uh, I can't go back home like you because my parents won't let me come back home. Um, and, uh, and, and I'm supposed to pay you for that? I, I, I was like, that doesn't make sense to me. Like, what's the benefit here? Oh, I get to be your friend, but I'm already your friend. Why would I pay for something that you're giving me for free? Like, you approach me because we're already friends. I'm not, I'm not doing that. Doesn't add up. It, it just didn't make any sense. And because it didn't make it's five beta sigma. Okay, sorry if you're five beta sigma. No offense. I just didn't remember. I apologize. So I remember thinking like this. This doesn't make sense to me. I'm not. No disrespect if you're you're Greek. My brother and my sister are both Greek, and I understand people do it for different reasons. And I have a lot of respect for Greek letter organizations when you're doing good things for the community. I, it's I, no no issue there at all. But it didn't add up to me. And and when it didn't add up to me. That was all I needed to know. I wasn't going to do it just because everybody else was doing it. Right. And so so to some extent, sometimes not fitting in or being the so-called oddball is, is the greatest benefit you can ever have, because the oddball can solve the problem in a unique way. And the oddball is usually if they're confident enough and comfortable enough, is usually going to find pathways to realities that other people can't imagine because they don't even know that their minds are in a prison. You're, you're, you're in a psychological jail cell. So um, so bust out of jail and solve the problem however you need to solve it. That you're, I'm talking about your relationship problems, your health problems, your financial problems, whatever it is. 
you know, uh, and don't let anybody tell you how you're supposed to go about doing it, especially somebody who's never actually achieved that result that you're looking for before. Most people, most black folks don't know what it takes to be a millionaire because most of us aren't millionaires. Most, a lot of black folks, unfortunately, don't know what it takes to make a marriage last 30 years. They, that don't happen as much anymore. You know, most black folks can't tell you how to have a healthy lifestyle where you're able to avoid uh, diabetes, cancer, strokes, heart attacks and heart disease and everything else that's affecting us from the food. Because, you know, we're, we're, we're their number one customers at Popeye's Chicken and McDonald's and all these other places. So so to really do that, you have to have that courage to go in your own direction. And, and, and maybe my part of my job is to encourage you to do that so you can find the solutions that are going to make you happy and get you where you want to get to. And then once you find the solution, go back and do like Harriet Tubman, go back and free as many slaves as you can. Some of the slaves you're going to have to leave behind. Some of them you might have to shoot, but it's OK. There's going to be some that are going to say, Please help me get there. And that's what I do. I don't argue with the people that Harriet would have shot. And I don't argue with the people that Harriet would have left behind. In fact, I don't want to argue with nobody. I talk to the people that are that look and say, okay, I'm trying to figure out, figure some of this out. Can you help me? That's why I'm talking to you right now. So thank you guys for listening. I'm going to stop talking now. We've been going for a while. And uh, my, my, my Instagram, my new Instagram is Dr. Voice Finance. And uh, so if you want to join over there, feel free to do that. Also, uh, if you'd like to get the profit alert sent to you via text, just text the word STOP to 31996. You can do that after we get done. And uh, also, last but not least, uh, so text STOP to 31996. And uh, also, whether you listen to this podcast on Spotify or not, again, Spotify, just look up my name, Boyce Watkins. You can find it. Uh, also, if you want to get a copy of my book, my new book is called The Ten Commandments of Black Economic Power. You can get a copy at drboycebooks.com. Use the code word book club. You can get 30% off anything in our store. Uh, and also, I want to give a shout out to Dr. Claude Anderson. Uh, his website is powernomics.com. So I hope this conversation was helpful to you. And uh, my two cents says Instagram, be careful, doctor. Yes, I'm very careful. And, uh, you know, it's uh, I'm a thinker. So hopefully, hopefully uh, I'll be able to you know solve some problems here. But, you know, sometimes Instagram gives us problems, but we're not going to leave Instagram but we're not dependent on Instagram. All right. So uh, if you uh, missed any of this, Feet Funkerson, you can go back to the beginning. Uh, I think it'll be worth your time. If you ever want to get through, here's a little trick. If you ever want to get through the content faster, just speed it up. Like I listen to everything on Spotify and YouTube at like 125 or 150%. That helps me get through more content faster. Uh, so I tend to either listen to people that I really want to hear from or people that are that, where I'm learning things. Right. So um, that's how you, that's a little trick. I don't know if you guys do that or not, but you hit the little gear icon. You can speed it up and in uh, that way you can get through a little bit faster. So uh, so take care, guys. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening. And uh, I'm going to check in with you guys again real soon. So um, uh, in fact, I'll be in Denmark next time we talk. So uh, so have a good a good night and uh, I'll see you soon. Peace. Here we are, clan the isms, cataclysm, great. Our people out here struggling, trying to make it in this state. Everybody out here doing it, but we the ones who late. Now family, we the ones who gotta delegate. Get that money in the power, never be fake. Stick to co-sign for three, what did he say? Uh, create jobs, support our own. Educate the same and buy back your home. Got three degrees, triple ten. Three PhDs, now we on the CNN. DBTV, let's talk about negligence. Ignorance is bliss, but we can turn it to intelligence. Please, none of what you hear, half of what you see. Let's break it down here on Dr. Voice TV. Here we are.